everybody, and welcome to another True Stories of Tinseltown. And I have a fabu guest for you today. His name is Julian David Stone. Hi, Julian. Hi there. How you doing? I am doing swell. Sweller than swell, actually. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really happy about it. And I also have been to your website, and you have so many amazing books and your Frank Sinatra stuff. So I'm just mega impressed by all your work. Oh, well, thank you. And today we are talking about his book, and I love this, It's Alive! That infamous, wonderful quote. It's one of like the, the best quotes of all time they have for movies from Frankenstein by Dr. Frankenstein, Colin Clive. And it's alive and it is a novel, but, and um, why don't you tell us the gist? Sure. So my, my novel, It's Alive, is historical fiction, and it tells the story of the days leading up to the per- beginning of production on the original 1931 Frankenstein and all of the chaos that went on behind the scenes because, you know, most people, well, not most people, everybody knows that Boris Karloff played the monster. Well, that was not, that was almost not the case. Bella Lugosi was originally supposed to play the role and there was a lot of back and forth. And based on the actual historical record, the final decision went right up until, until the beginning of production as to who would play the role. So my book tells that story and in the midst of all of it is another real person from history is a Carl Lemley Jr., the son of Carl Lemley Sr., who was in charge of Universal Studios and was the person who fought to make these wonderful horror films. So I tell the story from the, those three characters' points of view, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Carl Lemley Jr., or Junior Lemley, as he was referred to. And it was so good. I really enjoyed it. It's a it's a fun read. And I'm like, poor Boris, you know, he's getting like yunk, yunk, yunk. And, you know, until the last minute. But was it really that tumultuous? Uh, you know, uh, some of it is creative license with it, you know, being being, uh, you know, historical fiction. But right. and anybody that's ever spent two minutes working in the film business, if anything, what I did was understated. All films are <laughs> chaos just in their nature. And all of the back and forth is absolutely based on truth. There's a very famous letter that was written uh, by James Whale, the, the director of mm-hmm. Frankenstein, that was uh uh, was sent with the script to Colin Clive about two weeks before the beginning wow. of production. And in this letter, he says, and playing the role of the monster will be either Bella Lugosi or Boris Karloff. So there you have it from James Whale in a letter to, you know, the star or one of the stars of Frankenstein, the, you know, Colin Clive, who played Dr. Frankenstein, that even he didn't know two weeks before the beginning of production who exactly wow. was going to play this role. And he, you know, he wasn't even supposed to get the role, Colin Clyde. They had somebody, uh, other people lined up for his part. But he was perfection. He's so he, he was. He's so skinny and haunted, and so everything. It's just like he, he breaks my heart. And he has a tragic story anyway. But he, he, he does. You know, you you mentioned in the introduction. You know, the it's a live line, and just a couple of things about that. You know, talking about his performance. Uh, first of all, in the original script, you know, it's it's alive as sort of the climax of the famous creation scene. And in the script, he 
only says it's a, it's alive, you know, when when the monster starts to move twice in the film, he does it seven times. Wow. That's how much Colin Clive sort of <laughs> w- was in the moment. And something else you mentioned, I actually I just sort of came to this conclusion not that long ago, but I thought about it. I think it's alive is the oldest line from a movie that you can throw out that everybody knows. It is. I think, yeah, I can't think of a line earlier in film history that, you know, I mean, this is only three, four years into the sound era. So uh, I think it pretty much is the oldest line. And it's such a good one. And I didn't yeah. know in the in the uh, cut, he says it seven times because I've seen Frankenstein, yeah. I'm sure, a bunch of times. It, you know, that moment when the, the arm starts to move and then, you know, Dr. Frankenstein becomes possessed that his, you know, he, he's done it. He says it seven times. Yeah, it just he's just it's alive. It's alive. You know, he's completely, you know, some of, you know, as you said, Colin Clive was somewhat of a tragic character. And there's no question when you see him in that moment, he was channeling something inside of him that may have made for some great acting. But unfortunately, as a person, you know, he was in a lot of tumult. I felt badly for him. I'm going to do a story on Colin one day. But um, he also, because I was, I didn't know this. I um, I saw this for the first time because it was on TV years ago with my dad. And as a child, it scared the hell out of me because it was scary, you know, but now yeah. I look, it's benign compared to all the other stuff that's out there, but I still no love question. it. You can't not love it. But I didn't know there was a line that said, I'm God or something. Yeah. So one of the other aspects of the, the original Frankenstein being from 1931, it's during the pre-code era, you know, which I'm sure. I you love know, your pre-code films. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're, they're so fun. They're, they're, there's even, there's an air of frivolity and particularly about sexual things yeah. that even by today's standards, you don't see, you know, there's, <laughs> no, I, the, I'm not. There, there's, there's not nudity on the level, obviously, as you see in films today, but the, the attitude towards it, you know, unfortunately today, so much of even sex still comes with some sort of condemnation nation in it and there's none of it this is just people out there having a good time you know great films yeah so part of it was frankenstein has that line in that same sequence after he says it's alive and he says now i know what it's like to be god when the code finally started being enforced in 1934 that was excised from it and wasn't returned uh, to any of the versions of the film until the 1970s oh it is you know how come i never heard him say that shame on me i guess i was too taken with it well you know it's possible that you saw you know you you know you could have seen an older cut of it they they were still circulating yeah it could have been but i think when i saw it with my dad it was after that so i don't know well it's you know in the tv cuts it wasn't it was it was only eventually returned for like home video and things like that so yeah yeah so that was really good so this Mr. Junior guy, he he really his dad founded Universal and did they did his dad he must have still had a lot to do with it because it's a dynamic between father and son as well which is very good I like that in the book as well you know the that kind right. of like you know dad you're over give me a break <laughs> let me do this now it, right. it isn't the sound films anymore and. You know, I think the monster thing, because of the success of Dracula and then doing Frankenstein, you would think that they would think it was okay, but a lot of people didn't really believe in it, right? 
No, they didn't. You know, Junior is is a fascinating character. His his father, Carl Emley Sr., founds Universal Studios. He he first enters the film business in 1906. He finds wow. he founds the studio in 1915, and then in 1929, for Junior's 21st birthday, he puts him in charge of the studio. Man. And right, right, I know. Happy happy birthday! Right you know? here you go, Here's kid. The, yeah, and Junior immediately wants to make different types of film. Universal in the 20s was primarily known for making kind of you know they were a major studio but they were at the lower end of the of the scale and they made a lot of westerns and a lot of fare for more rural areas and junior wanted to change that so he started making less films and spending more money on them and one of the things fortunately for all of us people who love the the monster films he wanted to make those films and first he makes dracula which nobody wanted to make it's a big success makes bella lugosi a star and then he wants to follow it up with frankenstein and again people are like you're crazy you won't you know you won't lightning can't strike twice and that's where a lot of the tension with his father came from and also you know just as a writer it was one of the things that sort of excited me uh, the parallels because you're right it was a great father son story between carl senior and junior lemley and what is frankenstein but in a way a father son story right. because it's a creator disappointed with its creation and i really and liked it thing. it was really good yeah. julian i enjoyed the book because i'm Thank not you. a really big i had someone on before wrote a book called big red he's great and it, it, it was basically you know historical as well about orson wells and rita hayworth and there was tons of like yours real stuff but he could do the dialogue whereas nobody's there so you don't really know what the dialogue is but it exactly. was really good and i i just thought that that dynamic and i can just imagine i mean t- 21 years old my, my yeah. goodness so um how old was he then he was 23 or 24 when he was he was 20 he was 23 with frankenstein 21 when he took over the studio 23 when he was doing frankenstein that is amazing, really. And, yeah, and, yeah. And Daddy pretty much was still the overlord, though. Exactly. You know, he still was in charge of the overall corporation where Junior was specifically in charge of the production of the films and running the studio in Hollywood. Right. And and did Dad more or less think it was okay if if Bella ended up doing it? Was he more... He, you know, I there. I don't dwell too much into his father's opinions on the casting. The the issues, and from what I read, were more just about the whole idea. His father did not like those films. He thought they were ghastly, <laughs> for lack of a better a better term. I but love that it, word, ghastly. It, you know, yeah, it, it's wonderful. It, it, inter- <laughs> thank you. Interestingly, after it was all done, there's a, a great a great quote after Frankenstein turned out to be even even bigger hit than Dracula. That you know, he just says it was all junior. I didn't want to make these movies. He was right. So, you know, in, in the end, Junior kind of has the last laugh on it, but it was very clear his father wanted no part of it, as did a lot of other people in Hollywood. You know, the, the both Dracula and Frankenstein had been kicking around as properties for years, and nobody would touch him, and Junior was the one who had the vision to make them. And good for Junior, and being so young, uh, it's amazing. And I can only imagine how people felt about him because they're thinking he's a kid and Daddy-O gives him the job. And he had to prove himself on that level as well. 
Oh, no question. You know, the opinions on Junior are very varied. This, you know, some people acknowledge, look, he put these productions together, so he had some know-how to other people who did not have particularly good things to say about him. Um, Gloria Stewart, the actress who was probably most known now for being in Titanic, she played the old, uh, older version of, of Kate Winslet's right. character. She was in the original. She goes all the way back to The Invisible Man, which was also made uh, uh, at Universal during this period when Junior was was running the studio. She did not have particularly complimentary things to say about Junior and used a word that starts with an R that we're not supposed to say anymore about uh, mentally challenged people oh, to, to, God, to, yeah. to, to describe <laughs> him. So, yeah. So it, it, it varies, but there, there's, there's no question, you know, the, the, the work you know, stands for itself. I mean, you know, those two films that we're talking about and the others that were made uh, monster films while Junior was still running the studio, you know, are still famous to today and launched a, a cycle of films that lasted all the way into the 1950s. And amazing stuff. And and they're so fun. And, you know, like yeah. I said, when I saw Dracula and even I think not maybe, you know, whatever, it scared me and all those Spiders going up and doing that stuff. And it just was so great. But Frankenstein always gets me because when they say it, I can't see Bella playing that part. And I can't blame him because what he had had to bend in all that makeup. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that that's part of the, you know, the legend of why he, you know, didn't want the role was that, you know, he just finally had succeeded with Dracula, you know, despite, you know, the difficulties of having this accent and suddenly it works perfectly and he's become a big star. Now they want his next vehicle for Universal to be under tons of makeup with no dialogue. Yeah. And, and do you blame that, him? I don't. Yeah, no, I don't. But, you know, it's 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 one of the reasons I wrote the book is that all three of these characters, their lives are forever changed from this experience of Frankenstein because, you know, we can you can certainly say that Bella had a good point about not wanting to be in the film, but his career never was as big again as it was during this period after Dracula. You know, he had some other great films in the 30s, but right. things started to to kind of slow down after that where, you know, Karloff stars as Frankenstein and never stops being a star for the rest of his life. So you always wonder that maybe Bella would have pulled it off and gone to an even higher level. It's, it's you know, one of the great questions about how how different it would have been or maybe it would have been a disaster. Who knows? I think it know? would have, my, my thought is it, it just played how it was supposed to play because Bella has such a thick accent that, mm -hmm. you know, whereas Boris with a voice or whatever and Bella right. kind of got crap roles, but um, I don't know. I, I just can't see anybody but Boris doing it. And Boris oh, had the I, pathos, I, the whole thing. I oh, felt I sorry. Oh. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think his performance as Frankenstein is one of the greatest in film history. I mean, really I have is. watched... I have watched a lot of Boris Karloff to, you know, as research and he's always good, but he, he is unbelievable in Frankenstein. He, it, it, you don't see any of who he is as a person. No. It's, just, it's a complete transformation. And as you brought up the sympathy that you feel for the monster, it would have been very easy to make it just, here's a bad character. Let's kill it. Instead, you have all this sympathy of this monster that didn't ask to be brought into the world, no. trying to figure out what exactly he is. Yeah, and it he does. He 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 does such an incredible job because to me, Dr. Frankenstein is a monster and that's the sympathy. I mean he gets this hand, here a hand, there a hand, everywhere a hand, a pad, 
you know, everything. <laughs> and it's like, it's just crazy. And the flat yeah. top, was that really the makeup? Did he do that at the end? Where that, you know, th- that was, you know, Boris Karloff working with Jack Pierce, the Amazing. legendary makeup art- artist. They created that over, you know, apparently they worked for several weeks at night when they were, you know, uh, Jack Pierce was the head of the Universal Makeup Department. So he had to work during the day on, you know, he didn't just do the monster makeup. He did other stuff. And and Karloff obviously was was, you know, going all around town doing days, a couple days here and there. And then they would get together and uh, and work on this makeup at night and finally ended where they did thankfully for all of us yeah it's so weird though because i always wondered how did he get this flat head like 1950s fonzie kind of head you know that's sort of that, <laughs> the flat head in the 50s right I, I, with I both. think it's supposed. To, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's supposed to sort of emphasize the idea of sort of lifting it up and putting the brain in to really <laughs> emphasize that it's not the same. You know, the brain has been inserted into the cranium. Poor dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was so great, and he was. You know, his shoes, the whole nine. You go into all the details about it, and it's really, like I said, it's a fun read and it's a fascinating read, and I loved the dialogue. I, and I love the things you threw in that are true, like uh, Bella with Clara Bow. They really right. did have a romance. Did he have a naked picture of Clara in his house, really? Yeah, that that is absolutely <laughs> true. You can see photos of it. There's these great pictures from right around this time of him sitting in his living room, you know, in a, in a in sort of the way I describe it, in a smoking jacket. And above <laughs> him is this naked picture of Clara Bow that apparently followed, you know, he moved from home to home and the picture still exists today. Wow. I, w- I wonder if it's in his family, Clara. No, I, actually, apparently it's owned by, um, I don't know if you know who Kirk Hammett is. He's the guitarist for the band Metallica, and he's a huge monster collector. And he bought it at auction a few years ago when it came up. He actually has a collection of uh, monster memorabilia and posters that tours the country at museums. And I, I'm not sure if it's part of that exhibit, but I do know that he owns it. Cool. I would love that picture. And with Clara, yeah. just, that must have been some her from Brooklyn. Hey, Bella, you know, that's why I had to put her in there. Cause I had to, you know, she's such a great character. And it's, you know, as we were saying, it's this whole thing is the pre-code era in Hollywood. And it just seems like such a fun time. Oh, I know. Forget yeah. just even more so after the flappers and she, she, to me, I did a show on Clara and I absolutely love her. I always yeah. loved her and she did a couple good pre-codes. They weren't, but you know, that kind of ended for her, but I could just, I think they must've been an awful cute. Were they public or was, were they not publicly seeing each other? No, the, this apparently was just a sort of a fling, you know, that, that sort of went on. Uh, I, I believe it was while he was, it was, you know, a little bit earlier in terms of their initial stuff than the, uh, the period where my book takes place. I think it was while he was, he was, uh, getting famous as the stage version of Dracula. I believe that's when their, their whole original, Involvement started. Yeah, because he did theater. Did he do theater here? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he he did. You know, he he's so fascinating to me because here's this guy who's born in Hungary and at a very young age becomes a star on the Hungarian stage. Then he goes to Germany 
and becomes a star on the German stage. Then he comes to America and becomes a star on the American stage. And you realize this is three times he's become a star in a very difficult business and twice not in his native language. That's why you have to give major props. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Bella um, was a big star as Dracula on stage. It was originally a stage play um, before they made the film, and Bella was the star of it. And even though he had been the star on on Broadway, they didn't want him initially for the role of Dracula in the movie. As he put it, they you know they tried out everybody and their dog before they finally <laughs> before they Tim finally could have gave, pulled it off. Come on, right before they gave the role to him. Yeah. Uh, so and so that I think added even more to sort of his frustration with being given Frankenstein. It's like they didn't want him for Dracula, then they give it to him. He becomes a huge huge star. The movie's a big hit, and now they follow it up with great, good job. Now we don't want you to talk or to see your face you know, so. <laughs> oh, that's but it was he really betting on murder uh at, of the, at the room more to really be his his really great film well he it was the film that they gave him as a consolation so i you know i i i would assume being any actor every film you think is going to be you know is going to be a big one for him and it was certainly a very juicy role and he wasn't buried under a ton of makeup and he could talk. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I was so thrilled for Boris because you had it well and his wife. I love this word. You use this with the, some of the women. Stout. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little teapot. Boris's wife is short and stout. <laughs> They're stout. I love that word. I haven't read that word in so long. So oh, <laughs> I just laughed funny. at reading stout. But was his wife short and stout? <laughs> and there was her handle uh, and there was her spout. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've seen the pictures of them and she just, she, you know, she looked like she could handle herself. So I, <laughs> I, I just, I, I thought that that was the word that came to mind when the, there's a picture of the two of them sort of standing there. I was like, okay, this is not some skinny little waif that he ended up with, you know? So, uh, that was just the word that, that came to mind. And, you know, the, the way I portray him, I mean, you know, Boris was a struggling actor, and you know, I, his, I love uh, him, just love him. Yeah, I believe Frankenstein is is like the 80th, 88th movie that he was wow. in. Wow. And how yeah, old was so he, he when he, he, he played the monster? 43 years old. And Bella was also like 41, wasn't he, when he did the other No, movie? he was even older. He was 47. He was no, older. No, you're kidding. He was 47 no, yeah. when he did Dracula? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like I said, he'd had all these other all these other careers, you know, and um, one of the nice things that has come from writing the book is that I've heard from relatives of the various different people. Right. And I got a wonderful note from Sarah Karloff, Boris Karloff's daughter. And she, you know, she also sort of gave me a blurb that I could use for my book. And in it, she said, you know, the book is is fun and a wonderful insight into the film that made my dad an overnight success after 20 years in the film business. And I, uh, <laughs> and I thought that that encapsulated it perfectly. And that's what I was trying to, you know, he was, trying to show. I just loved him. And to me, if anyone deserved to get and become a star, Boris sure did. Because he oh. lay, he was a laborer. He had bad back. He had all these issues. Yeah. And, and I was so thrilled for him that he got all this work. Because I've watched so many of his films. And he doesn't always play a bad guy. He doesn't always play a monster. He plays a lot of complex kind of people. Did you ever see the one where he... He's falsely accused of murder. He gets the electric chair, but they end up bringing him back to life. No. What what film is that? I can't think of the name of it. It's so good. 
dead, hmm. the, the yeah, lucky he, he dead is. or something. And he's great. He's not evil. He's so good in his character, you know. And that to me, you know, like the story about him and the little girl, if you want to tell everybody, from um, the lake scene, killing the little girl. Uh, well, you know, that, that he, you know, that they became friends. Is right. that what you're, yeah. yeah he that, didn't that, want her to be afraid. Right. That, that he, you know, uh, and, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I first fell in love with these movies as a kid in the sixties and the seventies. And it was interesting that even as early as the production of the film, the little girl felt very comfortable around him and very famously rode to the set with that, you know, it was one of the, I think it was the only time they actually left the universal backlot um, for any of the shooting on Frankenstein. And they shot it at a lake mm-hmm. uh, not far from universal and that she felt so comfortable with him that she actually rode in the car with him to the location. And in fact, part of the legend is that Boris, Car- uh, Boris and James Whale, the director of Frankenstein fought over that scene. He didn't, Boris didn't really think the monster should do that. And Whale felt that it was important to the story. And, and you know, I, certainly think whale was correct right uh, but but that may have been influenced also maybe by his feelings for you know having just spent time with this little girl yeah and she was a doll and i yeah. love it they said well if you do it what did she want and she wanted and this i uh, gregory makes it as well and it's in your book she wanted like hard-boiled eggs <laughs> yeah yeah exactly God, the yeah poor kid <laughs> yeah well apparently she had a she had a very bad stage mother. I so, can only uh, imagine if she's yeah. you know, asking for boiled eggs. What a beast. Yeah, she's I know. a monster too. She should have been in there. Yeah. <laughs> Hardly a delicacy <laughs> if that's what she's if that's what she's looking for. for. Yeah, so I also didn't know, which I found out from your book, that they also cut the part out that he threw her in and they just found he- her being found. Yeah, well, so in the in the same um uh, cuts that were made after 1934 for the, you know, when the, when the code was finally being enforced, they took out him throwing her in the water, which unfortunately actually creates something worse because, you you know, the scene just ends with the two of them playing. And then the next time you see the little girl, her father is walking into town carrying her, you know, her limp dead body. Oh, and your, your mind can go like what, you know, you can go so much worse, you know, when he throws her in, it's obviously a bad thing, but it's, you know, it's. He didn't mean to murder her. No, No, he didn't mean to do it. And your mind can go to much worse places when she's this lifeless body. And so that that was an unintentional thing that people always commented on that made it actually much worse. That's, you know, the scene has been restored to its original, um, uh, you know, with him throwing her in and all the and all the cuts that are out now. Did they um, they didn't put that back in until the 80s? All of it came back in at the same time. Oh, when I think they it was did. The, the, yeah, when it was probably the first home release of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know the because I, I, you know, just knowing the way and that the famous packages of the horror films in the sixties, oh, the, 60s the that, Universal horror films and all that stuff. Yeah, yes, fabulous. And and I don't. I think those used the original cuts. It wasn't until home video that they restored uh, the, those cut scenes. Um. And so also James Wales, there was supposed to be another director who you also have in your book. There's another director. Did he, was he the first one they chose to direct or was it James Whale? And James Whale said no. And they went back and forth. No, it, it was Robert. Robert Flory was the first person involved in the project at all. In fact, he wrote the first draft of Frankenstein, which really made the leap from Frankenstein obviously was a book in the early 1800s. And there was a stage play that was out for a while uh, that 
had some of the that that was closer to the book than the movie, and that it was really Robert Flore who came in and did the. He was supposed to direct it, as you said, but he wrote the screenplay, uh, and that's really where a lot of what became the movie was first established. Then it went through some other hands, and Flore was removed from the project. James Whale was brought in by Junior. He was discovered um, after World War after World War One, and had started first. He did a big had a big hit on stage, which was then turned into a movie called Journey's End, and then that's when all of Hollywood was fighting over him. Junior won that battle, got James Whale, and he immediately um, made a film for him. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's very famous. It was remade with Vivian Lee. Um, uh, Waterloo. Uh, oh, Mick uh, Clark, Waterloo Bridge. Waterloo Bridge. Right. Thank you. God, I can't believe I forgot that. Waterloo Bridge. Blank all the time. Uh, terrific film and when junior saw that film in its early stages he loved it so much he said whatever you want to do you pick any project on the lot it's yours and james whale picked frankenstein and that's where robert flory unfortunately was removed from the project whale was given the film and the rest is history and that's also where whale was the one who's credited with discovering boris karloff very famously as he you know he was trying to find someone to play the monster and karloff Karloff apparently was in the commissary doing another film for Universal, doing a few days on it. And Whale saw him and said, would you try out for this film? I think you'd be perfect. And one of the things that um, Karloff always said was, as much as he was thrilled to be asked, you know, as an actor, you always want to be asked to to do a role. He was a little disappointed because he was dressed up rather debonairly and was sort of disappointed (laughs) that that his reaction was to say, will you play a monster for me? Yeah, and and Bella thinking he looks very dapper and handsome, and this guy saying, okay, monster beast, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Horrifying monster with bolts. Yeah. Exactly. But it was very... uh, I really liked it. I have to say it was a day I just, you know, because to me, I read everybody's book who comes on the show. And um, so I know what I'm talking about. So, (laughs) you know, a lot of most people don't read the book. I have to say a lot of people do not read a book before they interview people. Yes, I'm tooting my own horn. Toot, toot, toot. Yes. okay, (laughs) enough of that. Anyway, it really was a fun book. And um, I it was like. I had time. I finished it in two days. I did like 100, then 168 the next day or how long. It's 200 and something pages. So it's a really fun and interesting read. And you kind of – it's so, you know, between the father and the son, between, you know, like you said, Bella and Boris. Do they become friends? For real? You know, that's – well, first of all, thank you for the compliments on the book. That was my goal to make it a fun read. It's a fun era. So I wanted to to keep it moving. very fun. Um, As to Boris and Bella, you know, that's always – conjectured about you know they did end up making eight or nine movies together universal smartly saw that even though boris uh had been cast in frankenstein they now you know the good thing and not bella the good thing was they had these two horror stars so they put them together in eight or nine movies together most of them being for, for universal you know it was they always had good things to say about each other when you when you read interviews with them but they don't seem to have been friendly off the the you know off the stage outside of the studio but but on there everything you ever read that they got along just fine they had a very good professional relationship and when you see photos of them together you do get a sense that there there does seem to be a genuine 
you know, they, they seem to like each other. You know, I think there, there may just be the reality that they were such different people from such different backgrounds right. that maybe it wasn't going to go beyond a professional relationship, but there does seem to be a camaraderie, to some degree, a, yeah. a, a camaraderie and a kinship in it. No, no question. Yeah. Now I know did uh, so many people Lon Chaney, how many did Boris never play? I mean, uh, Bella never played Frankenstein, right? Because, you know, they had no, so many Frankenstein no, things. He, he, he did, actually. In fact, if you know, if you want to get to like what got me to originally write this story, the the, the first thing when I sort of I, I watched these films as a kid and then I rediscovered them as an adult. And that's where I saw a lot more into it, a lot more in them. And I started to research the universal films. And my first thought was, God, this is fascinating. You have this character of Frankenstein and you have these different people that played him, including Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And there were a couple others. And then that led me ultimately back to the original film. And, you know, once I discovered junior that suddenly became where i was going to go with the story but getting back to bella he did eventually play the monster in one of the later sequels the first three have karloff and then um a couple uh it's either ghost of frankenstein i can't remember off the top of my head which one it is but bella finally actually plays the monster and it sort of a, a weird twist of fate was in the when bella played the monster in the original version of that film the monster uh, was blind and also spoke. Well, they ended up taking the blindness and the speaking out of the film, but because the character was the monster, the character of the monster was blind when they shot it. Bella did the whole thing where he stuck his hands out, you know, when he walked. Yeah. Which, which is when you say to somebody, do an impression of Frankenstein, that's the first thing they do. <laughs> yeah. They put their hands out and they do this sort of clumsy walk. Yeah. So that's entirely from Bella Lugosi's version of Frankenstein. So to me, in a lot of ways, Bella almost kind of had the last laugh because the, even though everybody knows it was Karloff and he's the famous Frankenstein, the minute somebody does an impersonation of Frankenstein, they're doing Bella Lugosi's version of it. You mean Boris didn't do that? Because I do that too. If I, I used to scare my nieces and nephews. No, if you if you look if you look at when Boris plays the role, you know there's some moving around of the arms, you know, because he's lost. But the very specific with the arms out forward and the, and the legs sort of clumsily going along are literally because when Bella played it, he was blind. So what he's doing is he's walking like a blind right. guy without a stick. So, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I never so, knew that. That is a fascinating true story. Yeah. That I did not know. Yeah, it's it's a great twist of, uh, you know, it's a great irony that in the end, the, the most famous impersonation is actually Bella's version of it. When you go back and look at the, the three films, when Karloff plays it, he never does that with the arms outstretched I and, the, check and the legs. It out. Because yeah. I have all of them. Didn't um, Lon Chaney Jr. also play Frankenstein? He did. Yep, he did. And then Glenn Strange finally in the Abbott and Costello uh, uh, meet Frankenstein. I remember when I saw that the first. And they also met the werewolf. Those things scared me. I was just a kid. And I'm like running my room. Ah! And now you look at it. It's like so funny. It's, it's Abbott and Costello for goodness sake. Wah. Anyway, um, another thing I wanted to ask you is, um, so we're at Bella and at, the thing about him carrying, because I uh, I do spooktaculars every year for Halloween, and my friend Stone, he he is a big, huge fan of Boris and um, and Bella, and he said that uh, he had told me about how poor Bella, uh, poor Boris, had to pick up Colin Clive, and yes, he's thin, but he he's a not somebody you want to be carrying up a hill 
in 40 pounds. How, how many pounds for those shoes? Yeah, uh, they were very heavy. They were, like you said, they were, they were, I guess, asphalt. Uh, they were used for people that, you know, lay asphalt when they build roads. So they nice. were like 30 or 40 pounds. They were incredibly heavy. And he had a bad back to boot. And in your book, you kind of allude that the that James Whale did it to be kind of mean. Yeah, that, that's part of the, uh, the you know, supposedly it's even from the disagreement that they had about the scene with the lake. I've heard some people connect that, that he they shot that scene right there afterwards. And, you know, he made him do take after take carrying Colin Clive. And that's actually supposedly, you know, he already had a little bit of tenderness from his, you know, days as a laborer. But that that's really where his back really got hurt from all those scenes of carrying him up inside of the, the windmill. Yeah. And Colin yeah. Clive didn't want him to do it. He's like, come on, <laughs> just kind of dumb for the poor guy. He's, it's been, he's there four hours earlier just yeah. to do the makeup. I mean, this was something and he deserved. Uh, I just love him like. You said he never stopped. And come on, Christmas time, it's the Grinch who stole Christmas. Yeah, when, yeah. Know, Boris Rock in the voice uh, doing the narration. He's so wonderful. But Oh, he, he's terrific. Yeah, I love them both, actually. I think they're both. And I'm so happy that they got, you know, because Bella did not become a huge star, but he did work the rest of his career. Uh even though he did that horrible film at the end, I think he died. <laughs> the one with Ed Wood's film. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few, particularly by the time you get to the fifties, he's in some. Stinkeroos. Yeah. yeah <laughs> kind of some, you know, he, he was definitely in some tough financial straits. So he had to take some films that I'm sure he wished he didn't have to do. Yeah. And, and was he truly buried in his uh, cape? That's apparently the legend. Yeah. That they buried him in his cape. Yeah, it made him a household word, and he was. I just thought he was. I love the eyes, you know. And then they do like that little, you know, that little light behind his eyes, like yeah. laser pointer. But yeah. you know, like you said, this book is so good, and I, I would imagine Junior, the son, the Frankenstein Dracula dude, he must have gotten pretty heavy duty props after that. You know, with, with with Junior, he he never quite gets the credit that he deserves. Like I said, his father certainly gave him all the credit, but you know, th there were so many other films, and he did have ones that didn't work out. Uh, it, it was really years later, really after he died, unfortunately, that, that the, the credit and, right. and to some degree, that's kind of the mission I've been on since I wrote the book because Junior, you know, he he starts the Universal cycle. They make the first five of the films while he's running the studio. Then the Lemleys lose the studio. In 1936, and then Junior basically vanishes. I mean, there you know was a whole detective thing finding anything from him for the next. He lives another 40 years, and he doesn't make any more films. Wow! And he apparently, you know, I, I did hear from relatives, which, like I said, was great. It's been one of the fun things is hearing from Junior's relatives. And there's been a lot of stories that apparently he threw a lot of parties and he had a good life, but he didn't work in the film business anymore after that and i and he died in the late 70s and i feel like he died just as the whole generation like that i came from you know who rediscovered the film in the 60s and the 70s were starting to write books about these films and if he had lived a few years longer mm -hmm. i think there would have been a lot a lot of interviews with him and unfortunately he died before he got the acclaim that he deserved that's such a shame and he you know it is such a shame because, like, people said, well, he's remembered after he's dead. And, yeah, well, he's dead and he doesn't know he's remembered. <laughs> it's nice to right. know you're, you're remembered. It's like, you know, they give posts from his Oscars or, you know, like, they're dead, they're dying. Poor Edward G. Robinson got, never got nominated. And 
not never got nominated even. Wow. And he got, you know, he he did Soylent Green, which I thought he was amazing in. He died before he got it, but at least he knew he was going to get it, which was something good. But you know, these yeah. other guys, like he really, it's a shame that he didn't get to see that. It really is. Yeah. Because he did. He done good. He really done good, I think. No, he did. It's, it's there, you know, it, here it is almost 100 years later. We're still talking about these movies in Florida at the Universal Studios theme park there. They're building a whole Universal Monsters land. Oh, how right cool. Now. Yeah, so they've they've really you know you know survived all these years with with popularity as well. They should because they're they're fun and they're you have to think of the time. Like you said, it's it was like a hundred almost a hundred years ago, and these right. films still resonate. And yeah, I'm the younger kids are like oh poor schmore, and like I said, they don't really scare me. But I you know because everything's so gross. No real clever horror films are out anymore. They're Slice and Dice or something like that. Right. And these are just like great. Well, I think one of the, you know, the, there, I think there are still, there are younger people that are appreciating them today. They're not appreciating them necessarily for being scary the way right. that some contemporary ones, but they still are incredibly popular. And I think the reason they have survived is that they were this wonderful mix of horror and comedy. And that's what's made them still resonate today, where, you know, a lot of stuff that's just dark, right. you know, or, or it, it wouldn't, it, it, it isn't as popular as those films are today. And they're fun, you know, because I do yeah. around Halloween because I love all the universal horror. And then the cheesy ones, you know, the, the Lon Chaney. I love the werewolf because he set the pathos and the sorrow of the werewolf. I thought he was great. Although we yeah. could talk about how he changed into one in his feet and all that stuff. But we're not going to do that because <laughs> we're talking about your wonderful book, Julian. And I absolutely enjoyed it 159%. Would you like to add anything to me blabbing? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm glad that, that you enjoyed it. You I know, really I, did. That was really what I, I like I said, it was a fun era and I wanted I just wanted to instill that and talk about this, you know, th these fascinating films that are still people still care about today. And you do. You've you've got I'm gonna link you guys up to Julian's web page and also his author page. You've also done stuff on Frank Sinatra, you've done um <laughs> Uh, a fiction on Elvis. I'd love. I can't. I gotta read that one. And <laughs> behind the scenes of the beginning of TV, and then you have another one, and wonderful reviews. And one I really want to talk to you about is Rock and Roll Renegade. You, <laughs> the Renegade. <laughs> I love it. So there's so yeah. much stuff, Julian. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I used to photograph rock and roll How concerts cool. by. By sneaking in my equipment, uh, this is way before digital. So you're talking about big, cumbersome 35 millimeter equipment. Good for and you. yeah, I put out a book of, of my stuff a few years ago, and it's it's gone over really well. I had a lot of adventures being chased oh. by roadies and security and oh. the whole bit. Well, I'd love you to come on. I'd love you to come on and talk about it if you'd like sure. to. Anytime, I'd, absolutely. Terrific, because you have so many interesting things, and you know I don't want to talk about them because. It, this is about it's a lot and, um, but i would love you to come back on if you want to seriously i, I would love to anytime I, I have a lot of great stories i can tell you some amazing stuff when it comes to that book absolutely Ooh, i love that stuff i love it all it's it's Sounds wonderful, really. So I'm really looking forward to that. And we'll fix that up. Um, okay. So everybody, I am telling you, it's... Why don't you say the word? Because I'm too corny. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
<laughs> sure. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Seven times. Right. <laughs> Seven times fast. Seven times. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, and it just, when you watch it, like you said, you don't even realize it because it's so organic and he's so yeah. in the moment. I don't know. You don't, it's so funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, you got to do a sequel because <laughs> that's such a good – I love that movie. But Yeah, um, a, a lot of people have asked me that if I – you know, I would certainly love to because you could certainly continue on, you know, the wonderful. story of these characters. So great. Is, and, is great after this. And your dialogue is wonderful. It's not cheesy. Oh, thank you. It's very realistic and it is fun. And believe it or not, I have a lot of, like, people in their 20s who listen to this. Um, and they love classic Hollywood. They love all of this stuff. So you're right about the Universal and them liking these yeah. movies as well. So um, that that's great. It carries on. It'll carry on and carry on and carry on. Let's and that's wonderful. And your book is a historical novel. Again, it's alive. And this is the fabulous Julian David Stone. And Julian, thank you so much for coming on. I really had fun. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's been really great. Great. And like I said, you come on and we'll talk about the other stuff. I'd love it. That would be awesome. I would love that. Okay. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Julian. And thanks, everybody. I love yous. I love yous all. Bye, everybody. Listen to the stories of